0: Family. It's good to be with you again, albeit from my office. Um, hopefully we'll be able to meet uh, the next few weeks or months. We're actually looking at uh, the next few weeks, uh, possibly uh, certain people in our church who feel comfortable right now uh, get together in homes and small groups uh, under 10. And so that'll be coming up here pretty soon. But until then, we come to you again through videos. So thank you guys for your patience and uh, thanks for being here uh, to worship with us in God's word. I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles again to Amos as we discover some of the different ways that God's people were feeling, or or things that they were thinking at least, um, preceding the time of his judgment. And so we're going to learn several things just about the book of Amos as a whole today, but then also we're going to look at that question of what were some things that we can tell from Amos' prophesying in his book, um, what are some things that we can notice from God's word that that actually resonate within us that are things that that we feel as well maybe sometimes when when God is disciplining us or getting ready to discipline us we can feel really good uh, about our faith we can feel really good about our church about our family about our community about our nation we can have some really good feelings but yet still at the same time not be walking in fellowship with God and so. God shows us in His Word how to delineate, how to see uh, these these false senses of security, false sense of happiness, and, and all these things that we can see that Israel experienced as well in the Old Testament. And then we can see how Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies from the Old Testament to be our Savior, to be our Lord, and to secure us in the salvation that we have through Him uh, in God. And so um, the book of Amos um, was actually the first... Uh, of the literary uh, prophets. He was the first writing prophet. And even though he's the third of the 12 minor prophets, they're called minor prophets simply because uh, those books are shorter than the ones like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. Even though he was the third of the minor prophets, he was the first writing prophet. And so he was actually prophesying from about 760 to 750 B.C. And so when we come to the book of Amos, what we see is we see the beginning of God speaking to His people about uh, the, the things that He's going to bring about to discipline them so that they'll come back to Him, so that they'll return to Him. Because we, we discovered uh, several weeks ago that God's desire is to walk in fellowship with us, for us to be near Him, because like our he- He's our Heavenly Father. And like an earthly father, He desires to spend time with us. He desires to know us. And he knows that fellowship with him is for our good. And so he's not going to allow us as his children to wander too far off. He's going to bring us back to himself. He's going to woo us back to himself lovingly with a hand of discipline. And uh, we see the extremes that he's willing to go so that we can be in right relationship with him. And he does that through his mercy and his love, even though sometimes we don't like discipline. (laughs) The book of Amos has nine chapters. There are eight prophecies. It begins with eight prophecies, three sermons, and then there are five visions and five promises. And the very end of the book uh, concludes not not with judgment or condemnation, but with the promise of restoration. Because that's what God does whenever he disciplines us as his children. It's always for our good. It's always for our salvation. We see the same thing in the New Testament. So God is a good God. He's a loving God. And he will not let us wander too far away from his presence. He will call us back to himself. But there are several things I want you to notice as we as we walk through this book, several key words that, that should stand out to us in concepts. One is this idea of a citadel. This word is used um, several different places repetitively throughout the book of Amos. And I think it's important. That we understand why this concept is mentioned. As a matter of fact, every time that this word is mentioned uh, in the Hebrew to reveal a castle, it's done, it, it is in Amos several times, and it's the only place where it's referred to um, as a castle in that way. But it's mentioned especially uh, in the very beginning. We'll see in chapter 1, the word citadel is mentioned in verse 4, in verse 7. We'll see it again in verse 10, in verse 12, and in verse 14, all just in the first chapter. Then again in chapter 2, we see it in verse 2 and verse 5. We see it repeated uh, several more times in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And what God has to say about the citadels of his people is not very good. Um, A citadel was, uh, it, it can be spoken of as a fortress or a castle, but specifically during Amos' time, the citadel was a was a place where uh, it was basically the king's house. And so each city, if there was a city that had a king there and, and for Israel, uh, I think that I think that the king's house would have been in Bethel at this time. And so he's speaking against this secure house that the king would build for himself and then there would be other um, well-to-do, uh, officials who would have their houses connected to this citadel. And it was a place, really, of, of, of two things that were important to Israel during this time. Number one, it was a place of security. Number two, it was a place of storage. And so because it was very heavily armed and, and built very well as a castle would be, it was a place where people would feel secure, especially the wealthy and the kings and their family, and it's also a place where they would store all their goods. It was kind of like a bank vault in that, in that storage sense. And so it was a place where, that helped these people feel very, very secure. And this was something that came under God's judgment very heavily. Because their sense of security was not in God himself or their fellowship with God. Their sense of security came from the things that they built with their own two hands. And so we're going to notice, as we kind of walk through the book really quickly, we're going to notice several things that Israel were feeling during this time. We can tell the way that they felt by what God is saying through the prophet Amos. And the first thing is that sense of security. They felt secure where they were because of these citadels. These were places that helped them feel insulated, insulated. Um, in their life, either from God or from foreign enemies or for those who would break in and steal from them. And so he repeats in chapters one and two, whenever he lists off all of these different cities that were going to be judged by God and these different people groups, he would constantly mention their citadels. And he would say, uh, like in verse 10 of chapter one, so I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume their citadels. Verse 12, so I will send fire upon Teman, and it will consume the citadels of Basra. Again in verse 14, so I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and it will consume her citadels. Again in verse 2 of chapter 2, so I will send fire upon Moab, and it will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Verse 5, so I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. So God is saying, I'm going to send this judgment, and it's going to come against the people, it's also going to come against the officials, to those who hold the scepter or to those who are in power. And, th- and no place is going to be untouched. I'm going to bring judgment in such a way that the, your most secure area of your city is going to be destroyed. So God is saying there's, there's no depth where I cannot reach to discipline you. There's no length that I'm not willing to go to make sure you understand uh, who I am and who you are in me and the love that I have for you. In chapter 3, he uh, he says through Amos, proclaim in the citadels of Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, these who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. So he He calls attention to the fact that Israel built citadels very much for the same reason that they had a king, that they asked for a king when they asked for King Saul. It's because the other nations were doing it. Other nations had citadels. They had this sense of security, and Israel wanted that for themselves. But what ended up happening was, is their sense of security, their desire for security from other invading forces created within them a type of insulation, actually, it turned into an insulation from God. They felt secure, and so they insulated themselves from God. And it it became something that really bothered the Lord. He said, you're seeking basically and trying to protect yourself from foreign enemies. That's turned into a an insulation actually from your own God. I have a uh, one of those Yeti cups laying on my desk over here. And uh, someone gave it to me several years ago, and I love it because... I can have ice water in my cup at like six o'clock in the afternoon or the evening, and I can have it beside my, my bedside when I go to bed, and I can wake up the next morning and I still have ice in my cup. It's a miracle. <laughs> I love it. But the reason for that is because there there's, a, there's a, there are two layers of metal, and then in between, there's insulation. There's an air gap in insulation. And if I were to take just a regular glass cup, and and with ice and water in it, and take it outside, especially back when we lived in Texas years ago, and set it on the front porch, it would have condensation on it, on the outside, in the first five minutes, and then within thirty minutes, all the ice would be melted, because there's no insulation, nothing can get in, nothing can get out of an insulated cup. There's no condensation. There's no chemical reaction happening through the glass, through these two, uh, because of these two layers of metal. And sometimes God's people try to insulate areas of their life uh, because of fear. And sometimes we inadvertently insulate areas of our life from God Himself. This is what Israel was doing, and God was saying, I'm not going to allow you to do that. The second thing we notice, and the thing that they, that they felt, is they felt at ease. They felt at ease. You know, they, 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 they were relaxed, and, and things, were, things were easy. They were easygoing of people during this time. And God confronts that attitude in them, especially uh, we see it in chapter six, a very first, a very uh, popular verse that, that I've heard many times uh, preached. This is verse one of chapter six, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. God says, listen, you, you feel at ease, but you shouldn't feel at ease. Uh, you should have already been jostled out of your comfort zone because I've actually brought all of these natural disasters on you, and and you don't seem to be paying attention. You don't seem to understand that I brought those upon you so that it would jostle you out of your comfort zone, out of your easiness, so that you would wake up and think about very seriously uh, your faith and your lack of faith. And so God's people during this time, they felt secure and they felt at ease, very much at ease. And then he says in verse 6 of chapter 6, in contrast to their feeling at ease, he said what you ought to be feeling is you ought to be feeling grieved. You ought to be feeling grieved over your sin. When we're grieved over our sin, we don't feel at ease. We're troubled. We're troubled in our hearts. And and God says to, to his children in Israel, he said, you should be troubled right now. You should be grieving loss. You should be grieving the fact that that so many people are disenfranchised, and you should be grieving the fact that, that many people are treated unjustly among you, but you're not. You're not grieved by that. You're not grieved by your sin. You're very much at ease. You're very comfortable. So this is another thing that they were feeling at the time. We notice also they were feeling happy. They were feeling happy. They were happy about the way things were. They were content. They weren't grieved. They weren't stricken by the judgment of God. They continued to be happy. This is the way that they felt. They had an attitude of, you know, things will get better. It's okay. Let's just continue to have that positive, happy demeanor. And it'll all work out. And God's saying, no, I'm bringing judgment. And your posture should be one that that goes from this false sense of happiness to a seriousness and a a grievous attitude over your sin so that you would seek me and ask me, Lord, what have we done? Show us the way. Show me how I've sinned that I might be right with you. So they felt secure. They felt at ease. They felt happy. In chapter 5, we'll kind of go backwards a little bit. We see in verse 18, they felt ready. They felt ready. He says, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. He confronts this this posture, this attitude, this feeling that they have of, hey, you know what? We're, We're good. We're ready. We're ready for the Lord. We want the Lord to come again. And that's how the many Christians today feel. They're like, man, I'm ready for Christ's return. I'm, I'm tired of this world. And I, that resonates with me too. But I also believe that there are many people out there who, who might think of it the way that Israel is feeling at this time, that they're ready for something that they're really not ready for. That Israel is saying, look, we're, we're ready for that day to come. He says, you're longing for the day of the Lord, but do you understand do you understand where you are right now in your walk with God? Israel is not in a good place when Amos is writing this. And he's confronting them and he's saying, listen, you are living at ease. You're, you've created this false sense of security all around you, yet you're not walking with God. And at the same time, you're, you're seeking the day of the Lord. You don't want that day to come. You're not ready. You might feel that you're ready, but you're not ready. Because you're not walking with God. You're not in fellowship, in right relationship with him. So they felt ready. They also felt very blessed. And evidence shows, I think, here in Amos that they were very blessed. God had blessed them on every side. In chapter 3, we see here, um, in verse 15, I will also smite the winter house together with the summer house, God says. The houses of ivory also will perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Obviously, they were in a very prosperous time in the life of Israel. They were living through this very prosperous time where they had summer houses, winter houses. They had houses with ivory. They had multiple houses. They had citadels within those great estates within those homes, and God says, I'm going to tear it all down. And there are times in our life where we feel very blessed by God and we talk about that blessing. We can feel blessed. We can feel greatly blessed. But we might not still be walking with God. We might be far away from God and not be walking in fellowship with Him. So they felt blessed They felt secure. They felt at ease. They felt happy. They felt ready. They felt blessed. And we also see that they they felt positively. They had a positive outlook. You know, I hear this all the time uh, today, and and I get it, I think. You know, nobody wants to be around a negative person. (laughs) I mean, I even feel this way as a preacher sometimes when people say, man, you've just been really, you know, preaching on these hard things and this stuff that's kind of negative and man, we need a positive sermon when you have friends who, you know, come to you and they're like, man, I just want to encourage and and be positive. And I don't like this person over here because they're, they're always negative. And uh, it's so funny. I can remember when our youngest, uh, when she was really little and she would come to Emily and me and she would tell, try to tattle on the other kids. And she would, she would say this, she would use this saying that always just cracked us up. We just laughed so hard at this. She'd say, mommy, daddy, would you tell so-and-so whoever's aggravating her at the time, um, to stop because they're giving me bad news. That's what she used to always say. They're giving me bad news. And I thought, you know what? Sometimes people are going to give you bad news. Uh, you know, we don't want to have bad news, but sometimes bad news is what we need. At this time of Israel's life, at, at time of Israel during this time period that Amos is prophesying, uh, they were positive people. I mean, they were po- they looked at things positively. I mean, notice what he says here in chapter 9. He says in verse 10, All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. That's what God says through Amos. All of the sinners among my people. Now, there's going to be a remnant that's going to be saved. But he says all the sinners among my people are going to be judged. They will die by the sword. Those who say, quote, The calamity will not overtake or confront us. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins. Before he gets into that good news that's about to come, he says, those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us, we're safe. We're good. Everything's fine. Let's just talk about positive things. God says, I can still get to you. I can reach you. I love you. I will discipline you you're mine. You're my elect. You're my children. I chose you from all the other nations of the earth. And in the same way, he's chosen us as believers through Christ. And we can have a overly positive attitude about things and say, you know what? We're going to be okay. It's not going to touch us. But if we're living in sin before a holy God, and, and and we belong to him, he will confront us. He will intercede. He will get our attention by his grace and by his mercy. And as believers, he uses his Holy Spirit to do that in our lives. They felt positive. The last thing that we notice, and and I know that I say that a lot. I say, I want you to notice this. We notice this is because what I want you to be doing while I'm preaching and while we're together is I want you to be in your Bible and I want you to see it for yourself, not just to listen to the words that I'm saying. And so the thing that we notice, if you look at uh, chapter eight, verses four through six, the final thing that I want to Warn you and encourage you at the same time about is they felt productive. They felt very productive. They felt very progressive. He says in verse 4 of chapter 8, Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open the wheat market? to make a bushel smaller and a shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. They felt very productive. It felt very progressive. Do you see what they're actually doing during this time? They're wanting to eliminate poverty in all the wrong ways. <laughs> So what they're doing is they're creating this class distinction. They're raising the the price, and they're reducing the amount of goods, creating this class distinction. And then what what happens is is he condemns them because what they're doing is they're taking their poorest people and they're trying to drive them out of the city. And it's not just an indictment against Israel. All the other nations are doing it during this time. All the ones that he mentions in chapters 1 and 2, he also talks to Israel about so they don't, they don't get away with something that the other nations are being condemned for and judged for, but they're all doing it. It was something, I guess, that was very popular back then within these kingdoms. They were trying to purify themselves and be great, and being great in their eyes was eliminating poverty, and if that meant deporting the poor out of the city so that they die in the desert or they go to another place, as long as they're not among us, we're fine. That'll be good for us. Progress. We're making progress. We're making progress as a race, or we're making progress as a city, as a community, by eliminating those who need us the most. It makes us look good, extorting one another, taking advantage of one another. Very quick, verse 5 says, to jump back into the business. When can we just get back to business? Can we just get back to business? The economy's hurting. Sound familiar? We need to get back to business. Why? Why is it so important for you to get back to business? Is it so that you can have the ability to bless people with the things that God blesses you with? Or is it so that we can continue to get more as individuals at the expense of maybe other people? We should really think about that. We should really think about that the way that God would want Israel during this time through Amos to think about this. Why are we so quick to jump back into business? We sometimes have a false sense of progress. We think that we're making progress. Now you guys know my views on uh, the pro-life, pro-choice issue. I'm pro-life. I believe that abortion is murder because of when I believe life begins. I believe life begins at conception. I know there are people that don't agree with me all over the world and that's and that's fine. But I think that it's interesting and sad and disgusting that we can be a nation that we can find ourselves as a church living in a place and sharing the same postures and attitudes and feelings that our culture does where we're just fine with aborting human beings and killing human beings in the womb and thinking that that's progress as humanity that we're eliminating those who are in greatest need and who might be the greatest tax on a society so that we can move forward. It's it's a terrible thing. It's a disgusting thing. But here Israel finds himself in a place where they're feeling many of the same things that we feel today, that we're making progress, that we're being productive. So I I want to bring this all down to, to to this statement. In the same way that Israel, here in Amos, feels that they're secure, they're happy, they're at ease, they're ready, they're blessed, they're making progress, they're being proactive, and they're being positive. We can feel these same exact ways as Christians today. And just like Israel, be completely out of fellowship with God. We can have all of these feelings of blessing and ease and happiness and even attribute those things to God and say, God gave us all of those things. Thank you, God. We worship you because you've given us all of this security and happiness and ease and productivity and progression. We can even be thankful. We can express that thanks and be, and be worshipful in that and still at the very same time not be walking in fellowship with God. It's possible. It's very possible. So a couple of things I want to leave you with, just as challenges and questions. Number one, are there areas of your life that you've insulated from God? Are there, sometimes we call it compartmentalizing. Are there parts of your life that you've compartmentalized, but then also insulated in a way, and you've set them aside, it's as, so as if to say to God, faith uh, has no place here. This is a place where faith is forbidden to interfere. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your personal life and relationships that you have with people. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe you've compartmentalized your work, your job, your career from your walk with Christ. And you've been, in a way told God, you, you can't go here. I'm protecting it for other reasons, but it's also a place where I'm not letting the Lord in. Do you have places in your life like that, that you've insulated from God? Also, another question, are you so concerned with happiness and ease that you've not mourned sin in your life? Are you so concerned with being happy and at ease that you just kind of put a band-aid on the sin in your life, you you sin, but then you don't really confess it. And you don't really deal with it. And you don't really mourn over it. But you just you just move on to the next thing because you want to think happy thoughts. You want to you want to move on and believe the best about yourself. Um, you know it's funny with with children, uh, with our kids, we we noticed years ago that you gotta keep a large supply of band-aids in the house, even if you don't think you need them. You gotta have them because it is a crisis uh, when a little child comes up to you and thinks they need a Band-Aid, and you look at them, and I've done this so many times, I've looked them up and down and go, where are you hurt? <laughs> you know, and they, and they go, right here, look. And there's no blood. You can't even see a scratch. But I'm telling you, and many of you know this, <laughs> you put a Band-Aid on that thing, it's over. So just don't even argue. Just have a, a huge supply of Band-Aids. So that when that day ha- when that happens and it will happen often we have five kids and it's happened many times you're ready to go put a band-aid on it send them on their way they're fine tears are gone it's all over I learned that early on in the beginning I was arguing with my kids saying you're fine walk it off there are, there are parts of our life that we we simply don't think they're that big a deal you know and and so we just kind of put band-aids on them you know, there are other there are other things that happen to you physically, okay, that are so great that a band-aid is not gonna work. A, a little psychological help is not gonna work, you know. It's not like putting a band-aid on a child's arm who thinks they got hurt but they really didn't. Uh, we really need to to do business with with our sin. We really need to look at our sin as it really is and not just patch over it. And think that it's not a big deal. Because it's not the same as putting a band-aid on the wound of a a child who thinks they're hurt when they really aren't. Our sin is a big deal. And we have the tendency, just like Israel did during Amos' time, is to to be confronted with our sin and say, Yeah, you know what? But I don't want to think about that. I, I, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to confess that. I don't want to come to grips with that and deal with that. Because I just want to think positively. I just want to move on. It's going to be okay. But what God wants us to do, because we're his children, he wants us to see how wounded we really are from our sin. And he wants us to deal with it. He wants us to be honest about it. So I want to ask you, are there things in your life that you've just kind of glossed over, sins in your life that you just kind of shuffled aside and moved on and try to think positive things that you need to pull out, you need to deal with? And you take before the Lord to say today and say, God, I've been hiding this. God, this is a much bigger deal than, than I've been acting like it is. Would you be willing to do that with him today, just where you are right now? Say, God, I just want to bring this before you. Think about that. And then finally, do you, do you have a godly view of progress and progression? When it comes to moving forward in your faith, do you have a Christian, a, a godly view of what that looks like? What kind of progress are you making right now at home? I know several of us, we have different challenges. Some of, some of us are working from home. Some are still commuting in some way or meeting with a group or something like that, but there's a whole new set of challenges right now, but also opportunities for us. To where we can make progress in our spiritual walk with God right now. And I want to ask you, you've had a month, a month and a half, almost two months. So I just want to challenge you. What kind of progress have you made in your walk with God? Has this been an experience for you that's revealed anything in your heart where you look back and you go, you know what? I haven't really grown in my walk with God. I've just been waiting to get back to work because I think that getting back to work is progress. Getting back to church is progress. Getting back to things that you know, that were normal before is progress. God wants you to make progress in your walk right now. He's giving you a time right now to be proactive and to make progress right now. And his view of progress is totally different than ours sometimes. So I want to ask you, challenge you with this. What is your view of progress right now? Are you moving forward? Are you making progress in your relationship with God in your walk with God? Are you making progress even in your relationship with others? I know that we're separated from many people right now, but if there's someone living in your home with you, if there's a friend or someone that you see regularly, what kind of progress are you making there? What does progress look like the way that God sees it? I want to leave you with these challenges, and I also want to encourage you today. God will never let you go because you're His. If you're watching this and you're a believer in Christ and you're a follower of Christ, He loves you. He will not let you go. And He wants you to walk in fellowship with Him. I invite you to do that on an even deeper level.